it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. G'day beer lovers, I'm Radio Brews News co-host Pete Mitchum and thanks to Cryer Malt, this is Beer as a Conversation, our weekly catch-up with the people who are making the modern beer landscape such a colourful and vibrant vista. In this series we go beneath the branding to get to the business basics, the marketing tips and tricks and most importantly the stories that paint the often unseen picture behind the profile pics of the people who make the beers we know and love to share. In sharing their stories we hope to give you an insight into what makes the wonderful world of beer so, well, gosh darn wonderful. This week I tracked down Bobby Henry, the beverage manager for the Australian Venue Co. for a long overdue beer, which turned into a coffee when we met at 10am. Oz Venue Co., which oversees a portfolio of more than 150 venues across the country and another dozen in New Zealand, has been hit particularly hard by the COVID-19 restrictions. In this chat, Bobby goes into detail about the plans and practices that's seen them survive the lockdown and the lessons they've learned as a result. We also talk about Bobby's journey into the beer business and then stumble into an interesting conversation about the latest beer releases from one of the big houses and Bobby sheds some light on the conspiracy theory that the big boys are struggling to turn the taps back on. It's an interesting chat which I hope you'll enjoy. Oh, and for those playing along at home, uh, towards the end of the chat I challenge Bobby to nominate any doubles that AVC might have in their hotel portfolio. As we discovered, the group has five different beer deluxe named venues but Bobby conceded there were no other double ups. Off mic, as we were discussing the purge of uh, problematic history and naming protocols, Bobby remembered one of their own. AVC has two Imperial Hotels. Enjoy the conversation. Bobby Henry, thank you for joining us on Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me along. Now, we always start off these conversations, uh, you know, it's polite to do the right thing and say, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so, my name is Bobby Henry. I'm the commercial beverage manager for Australian Venue Company. Uh, we call Australian Venue Company ABC, so you guys are welcome to as well. Um, we're one of the largest hotel groups in Australia. Uh, we own a lot of pubs and bars um, right across Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and I look after all of our beverage relationships throughout the group, including our own internal brewery that we have ourselves, which is Hawthorne Brewing Company. That's probably understating things a little bit to say we own a few. Uh, if you go back to 2015, you had five venues. As we sit here today upstairs at uh, the, the eerily quiet um, Beer Deluxe, 150 plus venues and 12 in New Zealand. That's right, yeah. So we've got 149 actually in Australia at the moment and we've got 12 in New Zealand as we stand at the moment. Um, you have to adjust the website. I know, we do have to adjust the website. Things change all the time, so um, that's one of the big things with our group is we are acquiring more venues um, very regularly, but we also um, sell off venues that aren't working for us as our group or don't fit in as part of our mould. Um, so the numbers go up and down, and I think if you were to ask anyone in the office, everyone would have a different number that they would give you. Well, I can't imagine just how quickly, it, yeah, it would change, and I'm really interested to get into that. I guess a lot of people would be familiar with many of the venues but not know that it's ABC. A lot of other people would be familiar with ABC but not know necessarily which venues uh, and, and businesses that you own. How many are, so there's Hawthorne Brewing Company, which is the, the beer side of things. Um, then you've got restaurants and bars, other venues? I think our typical model, if you think of the typical Australian corner pub, I think that's the sort of model we go through. It, it's a, a pub that has good food and good beer and is really welcoming. Uh, we do have some very specialised wine venues. We've got a few specialised cocktail venues as well. Um, the, the market share of our pubs are pubs. They're just a typical Australian pub that you would like to go in and have a palmer and a, um, you know, a nice big beer and um, have a great time with your friends. So sorting out the um, being the beverage manager for that many venues, I can imagine will be a blessing and a curse. Um, I, I can imagine it will be very, very difficult. How does the company juggle, okay, we're, we're a real estate business or we're a hospitality business or we're a, a people business? First and foremost, we're for our customers. So we leave all of our venues. And, and this is one of the things you, you mentioned before, Pete, that no one knows what our venues are and where they belong and whether they're part of AVC or not. And that's because we leave, some, um, we leave them run autonomously by themselves. So they still operate as the Beer Deluxe or the Duke of Wellington. You know, two of our biggest pubs are right across the road from each other in Flinders Street in um, Melbourne. 
And you would never know that they were the same group. Um, so really it's about the people and what the people are wanting when they go into those venues. How we manage that holistically, we don't actually own any of our venues. So the venues ourselves, we just lease them. We are a venue company, so we are a hospitality provider and not a, a property management group, which is, I guess it saves a little bit of, for us. It makes it easier for us to manage that. Um, and I was thinking about that when I was doing my research because uh, I used to work for a restaurant company um, that had this dream of, of, of being um, everywhere to everyone and bought all these quite expensive sites and then woke up to the realisation that we're not in real estate, we're in, we're in hospitality. It must also then, I guess, like you say, it takes that weight off your shoulders as a, as a business, but it also means that you can build a track record of being a good leasee or good, a good tenant, which is then, I guess, good business sense for a, for a landlord. For sure, yeah. I mean, that all comes down to scale. Um, inevitably, you find that there are... Um, like landlords that own pubs there's like major landholders that are pub owners and we lease a lot of their venues off them so we've got great relationships with a handful of very strong landlords Um, there's a few others that are around that we've started developing those relationships with and you know they're, they're the landlords they manage their properties and they work closely with us to make sure that we're getting out of those venues what we need so whether that might be a refurbishment or a, an upgrade or a redo or whatever that rebrand whatever it is They've, a lot of them have come to the party, I think, because of the scale that we're at now as well. You know, with over 160 venues, it just gives us a little bit of credibility that we really know what we're talking about and what we can do. And, and we can show them what we can implement as well. How did you go from five in 2015 to adding another almost 100, well, over 150 in five years? Yeah, it, um, I think I haven't been around for that long, to be honest. So I, I can only tell you what I've heard around the traps. And look, I think the business model was to just acquire the venues as rapidly as possible and get up to a point where we were one of the largest hospitality providers in Australia. There's some really clever people that work in our business. Um, I feel really grateful to be part of the business and be able to offer my expertise in that area as well. Um, but, you know, they're very strategic about their approach to what they want and how, they, how those venues will fit into our group Um, and being a big group just gives us scale and it gives us the ability to be able to maximize our profitability and at the end of the day that's what it's about while delivering those palmers and beer to our customers at the right price. You hinted there at you know you haven't been there since the start so obviously there's a there's a career of Bobby Henry that um, I, I, I guess and this is where it's interesting that how how far we've come is a sign or a sign of how far we've come is people who know Bobby Henry and people who go never heard of him. So a lot of people would know you um, as the beverage consultant for AVC, but then there's another group of people who know that you actually came from the beer background. Talk us through that. Yeah, so I actually um, studied chemical engineering in Newcastle University a long time ago now. It feels like ages ago, and I actually did one of my major theses on beer production and. I always had an aspiration to work in beer. Um, I've always loved beer. I've always enjoyed drinking beer, obviously. I see it as a real tool for a social engagement. Um, So I really like the hospitality angle of beer as well. Um, But I put a thinking cap on after I finished university and decided to go somewhere else. And I worked in the pharmaceutical industry um, for a long time in sales and um, in marketing and sort of commercial aspects of the pharmaceutical and medical devices field. After I'd been in that industry for about 10 years, I decided to have a career break and I moved over to Canada um, where I became a brewer. I actually went back to what I really originally wanted to do and why, why I was studying chemical engineering. And I worked as a brewer at Red Truck Beer Company for three years. So were those two things linked? Did you move to Canada to become a brewer or when you went to Canada you fell into a job as a brewer? It's a great question. I I had aspirations of looking for a job in beer, but I was really, I had never worked in beer, so I didn't know what it would be like. Um, I guess I was really fortunate to meet a right person at the right time. And sometimes there's luck, it's good planning, it's a little bit of both, I think. You know, I wanted to do it. I searched for it when I got there and I, I got an opportunity and I grabbed onto it as quickly as I could. And, you know, that, that evolved into a, a great time over in with Red Truck. Um, I was part of the crew that transitioned their small, tiny brew house up to a huge production facility. Um, they've got a couple of hundred hectolitre um, brew houses now, so in, in um, Canada and in America. So they've grown significantly over the last five years that I haven't even been there. But that was part of my job over there was to transition them across. And when I came back to Australia, it just made sense for me to step back into a role in beer um, and not go back to the pharmaceutical industry. And that's where I started working with Deeds. 
So yeah, now, well, now the the artist now known as Deeds Brewing, but back then it was it was Quiet Deeds. It was Quiet Deeds. Um, I've known Pat and Dave from Quiet Deeds for a long time. Um, they're friends of my brother-in-law's, and it, it worked perfectly. The timing again just aligned well, and I ended up um, being able to fall into a role with those guys and help them um, build up their portfolio of beers and work through the period where they didn't have their brewery. Um, it did come to a time where I needed to move on and make a choice in terms of my career as well, and I actually, funnily enough, went back into the medical devices field. So I worked back in medical devices for another two years after that, um, and then I got this job um, as the general manager of Hawthorne Brewing for Australian Venue Company, um, which was a really, again, it was another shift. Like, And I guess that's one of the things I've been able to shift my career throughout my life, depending on what it was required at the time. Um, and when I see an opportunity, I try and take it if I think I'm going to really enjoy it. And it's probably refreshing for our listeners, particularly to hear that uh, you can get into the beer industry without the, I guess, the, you know, the cookie cutter kind of story of I listened to my mates and they told me my beer, my home brew was so good I should go professional. So it's nice to know that um, you know you're part of that other crew, I guess the the technical background, but also how it's still like you say, you know, it can range anything from dumb luck getting into this business right through to you know playing it out sort of step by step. Yeah. How, how have you found um, the experience with deeds? Um, is now scaling up to, you know, being a beverage consultant for so many venues. Yeah, I am... Firstly, I've got to say, I'm really happy with the Deeds guys. Like, those guys have really done so well over the last few years. They've really pushed the boundaries in... um, You know, they, they had a lot of challenges in getting their brewery up and running. So, you know, I stepped out at a time where I needed to, and I'm so glad that they've actually just continued to push forward and they're just doing so well in that space. Polishing the crystal ball, had you had your own brewery, would things have been different? Yeah, probably. I, th- I think so. If I had my, if, if we had our own brewery and I was brewing for Pat and Dave at the time, rather than just doing the consulting, it would have been a different story. I probably would potentially still be there. I, you know, it's, it's hard to know, Pete, to be honest. It changes all the time and my thoughts change all the time about what I actually want and what I don't want. So, um, Because I think part of it too is that there are people who, who love the brewing side of things, that, that the technical execution of, of a skill. But then there are others who um, it's really about the hospitality side of things. So you're still brewing, and, but, but being a, having that, I guess, um, the one-on-one, you know, the eyes meeting over the foaming glass, as Henry Lawson used to describe, and, and sort of somebody saying, this is really good, how did you do this? And you being able to, oh, well, I brewed this, you know, I chose these malts or whatever it might be. So what I'm trying to get to is, you know, where you've ended up now kind of seems like a logical uh, kind of circular journey um, but where perhaps even though you're not necessarily you know hashtag on the tools but you're still I guess getting that other the enjoyment from that other side of it yeah it's um it's funny if I was to actually like write down what I enjoy most about it it is that having a beer it's that social engagement with having a beer knowing that I've created something myself is a beautiful part of that and I'm really proud of that and it's a really proud thing to be able to say I've made this beer and please enjoy it and people do enjoy it it's great Um, but it's the please enjoy it part that I really like the best and that I guess that is right you know I've transitioned into this job now as the beverage manager for a huge group of pubs and it sort of seems fitting that I've got all of that technical knowledge and background and understanding and I understand flavours and how it works and now I'm implementing that in 160 venues across Australia and New Zealand. So I love the way you just say that and this is my next question is how do you do it? Um, Is it, obviously there's not one size fits all but the whole economies of scale, you can't be buying a slab of this and a six pack of that for this venue and and then 10 kegs like how how does it how do you um i guess look at the portfolio as um you know an avc venue but then how do you look at it as a little corner pub in a little inner suburban versus a regional or city yeah i think when we first started even when i first started within avc there was a little bit more autonomy with a lot of the venues they were doing their things themselves but you're right in terms of getting scale and um you know maximizing our our scale with providers, it meant that we did have to consolidate a fair bit of it. So effectively what we do at the moment and the approach we take is we we truncate our venues down into certain segments um, and we don't give um, an exact replica of all the different products, but the reality is, Pete, that 90% of all the beers come from a handful of products. 
um, in a lot of those venues. So it does make it easier to say, you know, in Queensland, Forex Dry is going to be pretty much in every single one of our pubs. In Victoria, Furphy is going to be in pretty much all of our pubs. Um, and, and that's where we were able to maximise our scale and size with the big providers of beers where a lot of the volume does go through and maximise the costings for us. Um, and that, that gives us the opportunity to maximise our profitability as a group overall. Um, and it's also probably not, you know, stating the obvious too much to, su- to suggest that um, 10 years ago it would have been a lot harder, whereas now with 650-odd breweries to choose from, it's a lot easier, I guess, to tailor an offering or a broader offering um, even if it's just okay well we want every venue to have you know a couple of lagers a a mid-strength or a session beer a couple of ales a couple of IPAs a couple of specialties you've got a lot more to choose from now must make the job a lot easier yeah absolutely I think you know we're sitting here in Beer Deluxe in Federation Square and it's a probably a prime example you know that we've got a lot of the macro brewers beers on here a lot of the macro brewers like Nathan and CB they've got a lot of smaller um, craft beers in their portfolios now as well so even in here you, you could sit here and look at that tap bank and think I can't really pick out which ones are the macro beers and which ones aren't but the great thing is 50% of the beers in here are all from independent brewers and that scale and variety that all of those independent brewers are actually providing to us means that this venue still works incredibly well as one of the premier craft venues in Victoria. And I think if we use Fed Square Beer Deluxe as a, a great example of knowing your market and then building a brand, um, early doors it was all pretty much, um, I guess it kind of transitioned almost from, you know, like a Belgian beer cafe where it was lots of Franziskana or, or you know, the Duval or Chimay, whatever it might have been in, in bottles. And then your tap selection was, was reasonably diverse, but I guess leaning towards, yeah, towards mainstream. But then again, if you sat here at 4.30, 5 o'clock, you know, when the, the suits bell rang... That's that's what they, they were wanting Peroni and they were wanting this and they were wanting that. Then there was the other group who said it's beer deluxe, so I want to come in and and they were catered for as well. I would suggest that looking at the tap bank and particularly from I think Good Beer Week last year, um, which was the first time that this upper level was was opened mm-hmm. just in the nick of time. Um, and they were still sweeping up the uh, the sawdust as as Good Beer Week opened, um, but it was great to see the the, the range. Correct. Yeah, there's only a couple of duplicate taps up here. So, you know, there is a really broad range of different um, independent beers that are available up in the the hot bar upstairs. Um, Jared, who manages it here, does a really great job at managing all of those taps and where they go. And and that comes back to the autonomy piece that I was talking about before. We are a big group and we do manage, and I manage a lot of the beverage staff taps right across Australia. But when it comes to a bar like this, you have to leave a little bit of autonomy in the venue and you've got to trust the people that you're employing that they are the right person for the job. And you know, we're, I'm confident working really closely with all of our craft bars, and we've got seven of them around Australia, um, that all the people that are in them know their local independent brewers. They know their national independent brewers as well, and they can engage with them to get the right price for the products and have them showcased in our bars um, to get the most out of them. This bar up here is a perfect example of that. You'll see there's a really diverse range of different beers, and Jared's done a really great job at making sure that he's hitting all the touch points for all of our consumers that come in and making sure that we're engaging with that group. Interestingly enough, 50% of all the sales that go through this bar are Furphy and Carlton Draft, though. And that's because it's really easy to get access to the MCG when the football's on, to go and see the Storm play. Um, A lot of the suits come in here and they just want their standard beers. They just want their regular beers. So you have to accommodate both of those things and you have to understand that market. I can tell you that if you were here from 5.30 until 7.30 on a Friday night, 90% of the sales would be Carlton Draft or Furphy. Been there, done that many occasions as a, as a Storm and Hawthorne uh, supporter. But if you come in here at 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon or at 9pm, um, 90% of all the sales would be from an independent brewer. Um, and, and I just know that from being in here and spending time in here and also looking at the sales reports. <laughs> now, before we get on to, uh, I guess, how you've... Um, the famous the, the buzzword, bingo. Um, I dare... You know, cringe to say it, but uh, how you've pivoted during this COVID-19 response. Um, But I want to just talk a little bit about, it's one thing to talk the talk, it's another thing to walk the walk. How do you go, and I'm I'm guessing it's not your portfolio, but that you would have a hand in it, um, 
many craft venues or, or venues that, that do support independent range of beer styles fall down a little bit when it comes to that education with the public. Um, and it, 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 you know, the polar opposites are, you know, the sneer when somebody asks for what have you got that tastes like Carlton Draft. Um, and then there's also the, I guess, you know, somebody who wants something a little bit different and the, and the, the server can't explain, you know, doesn't know the difference between an IPA and a, a Kolsch. Yeah, again, we, I, we leave that a lot up to the venues. The venues do a lot of that education themselves. We, we very clearly um, define what our venues are about. So all of our craft beer venues, um, places like all of the Beer Deluxe Group, um, even Salt Bar, which is up in Kingscliff um, in northern New South Wales, um, Hopscotch, which is on South Bank in Victoria. Yeah, great, great craft beer bars. They do a lot of that education piece themselves. Um, do we get it right all the time? No, I think it's almost impossible. Um, when we're hiring people for those venues, though, we certainly try and engage people who are interested in craft beer and have some sort of knowledge around it. Can we get them all the time? No. So it's about education. It's about picking the right people. It's in a mix of both. Um, and we try and make sure we, we do that by giving them plenty of tastings. We engage with the brewers to come in and talk to our staff and have training sessions at least once a month. Um, so we're engaging them in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of turnover of staff in bars as well, as you know, Pete. So it's hard. Well, I would imagine particularly your, your city venue, somewhere like this, you would be fairly reliant on that, that transient, um, you know, the, the six-month working visa you know, we're visiting Melbourne. Yeah, we do. We rely on a lot of those staff coming in. Um, I think the core group of staff that are employed as management in the venues, though, they're really strong. And we're, we feel really confident around those people being in our venues and managing those staff and being able to educate them to make sure that they're delivering what we promise that we're offering. And I think that's the big thing. It's about the consumer at the end of the day. It's not groundbreaking news to sort of suggest that um, stuff's been going on that has, I guess, hindered um, particularly the, the, the hands-on hospitality side of things. Um, how's it been for your group as a whole? I think um, it's been really tough. Like the, In all transparency, it's been very, very tough. We had to shut all of our venues on a day, um, the 23rd of March. I'll never forget it. It was one of the most horrendous days of my working career. Um, but unfortunately, that all meant, also meant that we had to stand down on almost 5,000 staff across Australia and New Zealand. Um, to no pay. So effectively for a period of time there's a lot of our staff and a lot of our staff who are on those visas still don't get any pay and a lot of them have actually had to go home to their home countries. Um, we're, we as a group have had to make some redundancies. Um, we're also fortunate in that we have a large central office that is able to coordinate a lot of the response to certain situations and this is a prime example of that. Um, a core group of us in the office really knuckled down and got it done and um, we were able to shut down all of our venues in a really timely manner and, and, and that was really key in terms of cost savings. Um, if you don't get things shut down and all the services and amenities finished, you end up spending more than you need to during a period like this. Um, so we are able to get all that done. And, and while we've been shut, we've been working really hard in the background to make sure that when we're ready to open, we're ready to open with all the right precautions in place. So um, we've worked really closely um, with you know what's going to be required in venues when we open up um, hygiene practices what that means in venues having thermometers in all the venues to test all of our staff to make sure that they're all okay to be working um, just having like sanitizer in all of the venues trying to to mobilize someone to be able to install sanitizer stations in every single one of your venues is, is a tough job especially when you've got 160 pubs right around from far north queensland right down to victoria so um, we've been working really hard in the background to make it work the other thing that I guess must be a logistical nightmare is that, as you said, you've got venues in every state. Every state has different uh, loosening of restrictions. Uh, every state has different, whether it's a square meterage rule or whether it's persons per venue, whatever it might be. How have you gone about, um, I guess, you know, keeping those balls in the air? Yeah, we've got a really great operations team. Craig Ellison, who was our operations manager, um, has really really coordinated everything centrally himself. He's got a team that works under him to be able to implement that. And we've been we've got lots of big spreadsheets, I'm sure you can imagine. Um, a lot of online spreadsheets that everyone can have access to from wherever they are in Australia to make, see when pubs are due to open, what the requirements are in terms of people allowed in them, 
um, if there's any specific requirements, because each state and sometimes each council area had different requirements that were expected by venues when they were reopening. So it's been a huge task. Um, again, we sort of try and coordinate everything centrally, but then let the venues do it themselves. So they make sure that they're right on top of exactly what's required. And we provide them with anything that we feel like that they're going to need to make sure that they're able to implement that strategy and that process when they open back up. What about the considerations of, okay, we're legally permitted now to open to X number of people, but at, you know it, that might not necessarily be economically viable. Who makes the call on, you know, you can have, so for example, let's use, again, Beer Deluxe at, at Fed Square, which as I say, I've never been in it when it's this quiet other than when we're setting up for the trade hub, the, the crime alt trade hub during Good Beer Week. Um, but normally, absolutely heaving, what are the numbers that you're allowed in here at the moment? So I think at the moment we're only allowed 20 in the entire venue. So as you can see, we're sitting upstairs in the hot bar, but it hasn't been open for three months. So <laughs> it's uh, there's it, it could do with a, it could do with a clean, Bobby. No, no offence. No, and that's okay. And you know what? That's 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 part of it. So you know, I think the reality is, Pete, we wouldn't have been able to open any of venues if it hadn't been for JobKeeper. Um, as as many flaws as that system has, it's really enabled us to be able to engage with our staff who were working in venues, our venue managers, our assistant venue managers, to be able to get them to come in and open up and the reality is having 20 people in a venue like this doesn't pay for the lights being turned on so without being able to have JobKeeper to be able to support those staff to run the pub we wouldn't have been able to open at all so um, Paul Waterson our CEO worked really hard at making sure that we were able to get access to all of that for all of our venues because we have a very complicated um, business structure and not all of our venues fell into the requirements that were needed to have that so there was a lot of our pubs that didn't even the venue managers didn't get access to JobKeeper. So we've now got it for everyone, which is great, um, and it's meant that we're able to open. We have, we have all of our pubs open except for about 15 nationally at the moment. Um, in terms of the, the people and where it becomes efficient to open up, effectively because we were petitioning so much and because Paul was out there talking about all of the systems and things that we'd put into place, as soon as they said we could open, we open, just out of a show of good faith, but to also show them that what we've put in place and the processes and procedures that we've got in place aren't detrimental to any of our customers coming in and um, it shows that it can actually work. And we've seen in a lot of areas that the timeframes that were put in, put in place by the government have actually been shortened because things are working really well. It's also, I guess, a little bit like a pre-season to a, to a sporting team, like being able to open even when it's not necessarily in your, your best uh, financial interest to do so, but it does instill those practices that are still going to be needed even once, you know, I guess the veil is lifted and everyone's confident and comfortable in coming back. You've got a bit of a head start, I guess, having those, you know, temperature checks and, and all the, you know, ticking boxes. Yeah, that's right. One of the big things that we've been able to implement um, while we've been shut is um, at table ordering. So we have a really great system. We've re worked really closely with a business called Mr Yum and all of our venues right across Australia have Mr Yum. So effectively you just go into the venue, you scan, you don't have to have the app or anything. There's no app. You just scan um, a barcode and it takes you to a website where you can order all of our food and stuff from your table. And again, it just alleviates the problems and issues with having to go up to a counter, um, having central ordering stations, having people come and take your orders. It's all just done in the background. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to do any of that without any of those, you know, that JobKeeper or um, any of the processes or just the team that we've got centrally. It just would be really hard. Is that even the sort of thing that you would have considered when without COVID? Like, would you have considered that kind of ordering system or is it this situation has, um, you know, opened that door to you? Uh, when we closed, we actually had about six venues that already had it, maybe a few more. Um, while we've been closed, every venue's now got it. Now, I can't tell you how hard that team has had to work to get that up and running, but that was one of that's one of our key selling points is that we actually have this system where you don't have to engage with anyone to be able to order food at your table. You just type in your table number, you send through what you want, you pay for it on your phone and it's done and it comes to your table. Um, so we were implementing it and it was going to be much slower. I think all of our pubs were due to have it by Christmas and all of our pubs have it now. So yeah, Everyone's got an early Christmas present. Yes. Um, how did you go, like most of your venues um, and certainly the ones I'm familiar with are a food and, and beverage offering. Were you able at all during the lockdown to, to, to do the pick up, the delivery, the takeaway or anything like that? Or did the kitchens basically close when the taps went off? Yeah, so oh, everything shut, Pete. Um, 
we really transitioned and pivoted our business for our staff, to be honest. So we had six or seven different venues right across Australia who were offering staff meals for our staff, people who didn't fit under either JobKeeper um, or JobSeeker allowances and that didn't have the income to be able to support themselves were effectively making some hospitality meals in some of those venues for our staff to go and collect at cost price. So that was our initial pivot. Um, it was to just be able to service our own people um, that's expanded out to be hospitality so effectively if there was other people in the trade who they knew were having really struggling we allowed access to some of those people and that's now shifted to the general community so we've opened up a lot of our venues to um, delivery food services order online come and pick it up those sort of things and that was a much slower transition and we couldn't do any of that until we could pay people so again JobKeeper really helped us be able to implement those sort of processes as well for us it was really about our staff though to start with um, it was it was really hard on a lot of our staff and being a big employer it was a really challenging time with so many venues and so many different uh, I guess venues with different personalities what have you learned through the restrictions that you perhaps look to implement, um, you know, on the other side? Uh, I think, well, the biggest thing that we're implementing is Mr Yum. I think that in before we shut down, it worked so well in the venues and now that with the requirements that are in place, it just is inevitable that that's how things are going to transition to and that's worked really well. Um, I think in terms of, you know, all of our venues still have that autonomous nature. They're all still their own little people. Um, there's and, and that's the beauty of our group. You can't ever tell that they're the same venues. And that's what we like. And I think we're going to keep that flowing through. One of the biggest things that we actually found out is we were doing lots of um, specials and discounting and it was all over the place. There were so many different deals that were running. Um, we're looking to streamline a lot of that process and procedure and offering great value to our customers, but just more consistently so that people know what they get when they go into any of our pubs. They don't have to try and juggle going to this pub for one special one day and going to this pub for another special another day. It's just going to be a consolidated approach to adding value to our customers. Now, Bobby, you and I, we've been trying to do this conversation for quite quite some time. In fact, it might have been in this very venue that we um, bumped into each other after a long absence and said, oh, we must must catch up and, and have a chat. But let's step back a bit again to, to when you were with Deeds. And, and just for our, for our listeners' benefit, let's put a timeline on when did you first start there? I think I started there seven years ago. I was with them for two years. So it's been five years since I finished up with them. Um, so in that time, I went back to the medical devices field for three years and I've been with Australian Venue Company for a year and a half, basically, at the moment. Going back to those the early Quiet Deeds days, one of those breweries who, I guess, did really well out of the, the, the contract model, were you describe, the I guess, the, the model that, that you personally, as the, the head brewer, what did you use? So, yeah, we, we used a contract, 100% contract model. At, at the time that I joined them, we were using a couple of different breweries to brew our stuff, depending on what our requirements were. Um, we streamlined that process down to just have one producer of our beer, and I think that was important from a consistency perspective. It was, it was still sporadic depending on how much we were going through, and I think that's the challenge that any contract brewer faces. It's, there's no consistency of sale. When you don't have your own point of um, brewing, it's hard to juggle when's the right time to brew and when to be able to schedule that in and actually get it um, in time and make sure it doesn't go out of date or it's you know consumed in its best before period. The other thing too I guess uh, that comes into it with contract brewers particularly contract brewers who have then gone on to, to get their own brewery the first thing they I think a lot of people are um, perhaps not aware of is that there is a cost it's not okay well, you're saving heaps of money because you don't need to buy the stainless but there's actually a cost in terms of your you know dollars per litre um, when you're in the in the contract model, and that's something I guess that that is difficult for a venue to uh, for a, for a brewery brand to to control. How did you guys go about um, I guess dealing with those issues? I, I mean, I can even tell you about Hawthorne now. So managing Hawthorne Brewing now, we are we contract brew our beer. Again, I consolidated Hawthorne's brewing down to one supplier, so we get all of our beer brewed at Hawker's Brewery, and those guys provide a really great service. The costs blow out because of the time that the beer has to sit in our 
3PL, our logistics facility, the people that actually, actually do the delivering. We don't have a warehouse and we don't have a delivery model ourselves, so we rely on other people to do that and those costs build up really, really quickly. Um, and it can really blow out the price of a keg compared to what it costs to actually just brew it and get it in a keg. If you were to brew it, get it in a keg and ship it out straight away, you can do it really affordably. But every day that that sits in that warehouse and every day that you have to wait for it to be ordered is another couple of cents that adds up and you know over a month or two months period of time it can really blow out the cost of those individual kegs not to mention the package product so we've actually streamlined our process um, to remove our package product at Hawthorne and we're just focusing on our venues I mean, I'm in a great position that I've got a lot of venues that I can sell my beer through so all of our beers all of our venues in Victoria have Hawthorne um, brewing on tap but yeah we, we, we've stopped doing our pack production because the costs were just blowing out for um, producing our pack beer. Would you look at, um, based on the, the success and, and, and changing that, that model, would you look at, um, is one beer brand enough for AVC or would you look at, if other opportunities came up, would you look at acquiring others? I think in hindsight, I think the business would probably make a different decision. And I think the reality is when I came on board as the general manager for Hawthorne, they had big aspirations. But when I crunched all the numbers and when I looked at what we were purchasing from not only the big guys, but some of the smaller independent guys, it wasn't actually paying off having that fully integrated system. So producing our own product wasn't more cost effective than actually buying it from someone else. And again, it got it was down to the cost, Pete. It was down to that the warehousing. So um, you know we can buy beer from an independent brewer, and they can ship it to us from the day that they brew it. So they don't have that extra cost that's adding up, and they're able to give it at us to us at a really reasonable price. Um, it it was getting to a point where Hawthorne pale ale was becoming more expensive than some of the other independent brewers who we were getting it from direct um, not to mention the big guys so in terms of having an integrated model like that it really it really didn't work for us as a business and we've really pivoted our business away from having that fully integrated chain of beverage production to service to just service and we buy more often than not and i've consolidated all of the hawthorne browns to just brands to just pale ale um, now so we only make hawthorne pale ale for our group and i think that's all we'll do for the foreseeable future that's a really interesting pivot and that's something i guess um you, we're we're hardwired to to pick up when a new brand appears but where we almost don't notice um, until somebody mentions it, that you know a certain brand or certain lines from a certain brand um, disappear. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting. It's a really hard one for me as well. You know, Hawthorne Brewing's been around for twelve years. I think one of the first craft breweries in Australia, in Victoria. Um, you know, they've always had that model of getting it contracted, so they never had their own facility. When I first started, I had all these great aspirations to to have our own brewery and get it up and running. But when I actually ran all the numbers and the figures across the group, it just didn't actually make financial sense. And as a commercial manager it's really important to not only buy stuff cheap but to sell it at the right price as well and that um, profitability aspect wasn't really working with the integrated model that we had so I just had to pivot that business away from where it was and where it was headed um, and and that's why my jobs changed significantly as well because I took an overall view of beverage within the group and especially around beer and it just it, it didn't make sense to keep brewing our own beer um, with all the different brands and having it sit there for a period of time because you have to brew at scale to make any cost savings um, and it was just sitting around for too long so it didn't make sense with you know 650 odd um, and when you know 12 years you go back 12 years ago when Hawthorne first started they were probably one of 150 now it would be one of a of 650 what's the the biggest challenge with the growth that we've experienced I think the challenge that the breweries are going to see is that access um, and getting your beer into places. There's so much more competition now. Um, that's one of the things that I found when I took over Hawthorne. It was, we've got a great brand that people recognise and understand and see it and they know it. And as soon as they see it, they know oh, Hawthorne's been around for a long time. That comes with a bit of legacy. It might be bad. It could be positive. You don't know. Um, the new guys that start up, they're, they're starting up with, you know, they've got to make a bang in their first go. Unless they make that bang straight out of the door, they potentially are going to struggle because getting um, their beers in in that really competitive space is going to be challenging. So I don't see the volumes being there because innately there's a certain amount of volume that's available um, and you can chip away at having it and we can grow that volume slowly and we as a group are looking to grow our volumes. 
but it's not going to be enough to accommodate the expansion of the number of breweries that have started. So I think that's going to be a huge challenge for any new breweries that are starting up is just that competitive nature and that competitive environment, especially if they haven't come from a hospitality background, understanding how to approach bars and how to approach venues in what they're actually offering. The reality is I think that whilst the pie is getting slightly bigger, it's more a case of the slices are getting getting smaller and smaller. They're definitely getting smaller and smaller. Um, You know, it's great to see new guys come into the market and really make a splash and make a bang. Um, It'd be interesting to revisit those breweries in two or three years' time to see how they've gone. Um, You know, there's some great new breweries that are opening up and I hope, you know, I really see it as a necessity if you're a young brewery that's starting up to have a tap room because you've got that direct access to market. You can get direct feedback from the consumers um, and it enables you to be able to change your beers or model depending on what's required. And we see the flavour profiles change drastically you know if i think about the days of little creatures pale ale being the most flavorful beer i've ever had in my whole entire life and it still is a great beer um but you compare that today to some of the ipas and pale ales that are coming out now they're so different to that style of beer um, you've got to be able to change and manipulate your system to be able to provide what the consumers are looking for in that instant and it is pretty instant you know we're seeing beers come out weekly new beers come out weekly so and that's it. It's always exciting. It's always innovative and, and it's, uh, we're always pushing boundaries. But at the end of the day, like you say, if 50% of what's going through here is Furphy and Carlton Draft, um, we've still got a long way to go. I've got to say, I was absolutely flabbergasted when I saw that figure. I couldn't believe it. It's actually 52%. So more than half of all the beer that goes out of this pub is um, macro beer. And I'm, I'm not surprised because when you look at the customers and we've been here at the same time, you, you see that they, that's what they drink. But, you know, it is a craft beer bar, and I guess 50% of all the other sales is independent craft beer, which is great. But you've really got to gauge what the consumer is wanting, and you've got to be on trend, and you've got to be on the market for what's being released and what's new and what's flavourful and what people are wanting, and um, the guys here do a great job for that. Now, it's only because I had the opportunity, and um, it, it's COVID has given us this opportunity, and I'm able to, to pick your brain and... and either confirm or deny once and for all a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. that um, the big guys are struggling with being able to turn the taps back on and venues are going to be short of Carlton Draft. You've got the, one, of the, one of the venues that has the, um, the Brewery Fresh Carlton Draft tanks um, in-house. Have you had any issues with um, getting supply from the bigger guys? Yeah, so I think firstly I would say that Credit to the big guys, you know, they've been in a really challenging position themselves. Both, um, I mean, Lion Nathan is our primary supplier of beer. We also have CUB in all of our pubs as well. Both of them have been incredible. And, I mean, that's not to even mention Asahi and Coca-Cola as well. They're also big producers of beer. They've all been really great at taking back beer, which we weren't going to use, that was going to go out of date and giving us credits for that. So that's firstly, I think every venue in Australia had access to that. So that was really great and, you know, great wraps to them. They've had a lot of logistical nightmares trying to collect all of that beer because the venues are shut. No one's here, so they can't pick it up. So we've got a lot of our venues that still have beer in them that needed to be collected from before we shut. Um, And obviously those kegs aren't then turned around to provide vessel for the fresh beer correct so there's this whole like backflow of logistical nightmare of um you know managing their inventory i think they also were caught a little short in terms of their production scheduling because you know the information that was being shared with us and with them was very limited and things changed so quickly so you know initially i think there was a thought that we wouldn't be opening until august september and i think the brewers had that in their mind as well so they had delayed their production schedules to not be sitting on beer for too long um what inevitably happened is things got shortened really quickly because as a as a nation we've done really well um and it's meant that they, they, they have fallen short I guess I'm really lucky in my position that I've got um, really great people who work in both those businesses and we've been able to get access to the beer when we need it. The range that we've been able to get access to is limited. Um, So it is limited to the top 10 products typically for an area. But having said that, that covers the majority. You know, 80% of all of the sales would come from those top 10 beers, I reckon. So I'm lucky because I have that buying power and I have that direct line into the businesses a lot of the smaller bars might struggle to get some of the core brands brands like two is new for example it's really hard to get at the moment i can get it 
most bars will get it, but it's it's tough to get. Um, so in New South Wales, we've only got a limited number of venues in New South Wales, but it's hard to get. The major brands, Forex Gold, um, Furfy down here in Victoria, we're not going to ever have any troubles in getting those brands. The other side to the uh, conspiracy equation, I guess, is that ah, it's been great for perhaps the smaller local brewers particularly with um with pack product they've been able to i guess fill that that gap um and a lot of venues sort of talk about how oh we've discovered our our local brewer that's not to say that you know they're not going to be cast aside for the big guys you know when things go hashtag back to normal but have you found uh, i guess new relationships with the with the smaller independent brewers um, I wouldn't say new relationships. I'd say probably strengthened relationships. I think there are a number of examples where we have had to lean on some of the smaller producers in our local areas. Um, so I mentioned Salt Bar before, which is up in Kingscliff. So it's in that um, Gold Coast, northern New South Wales, southeast Queensland pocket. Um, there's a lot of great breweries up there, as you know. So there's a couple of lo- local craft breweries up there that we've really had to heavily lean on, Black Hops and Burley Brewing, and um, to be able to get access to beer in that area because it's not a, a standard route for the major guys. It was harder to get beer into there, but it was easy for us to get some of the local beers. And it's a craft beer bar as well, so it made it easier for us to be able to range those products without having to then kick them off later on. Um, so that, that was really good. So there's examples of that. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me to say that they can provide it, which is really great. I think the reality is we're contractually obliged to have certain ranging in, our, in a lot of our pubs. Um, and, you know, I've had to try to stick to that without going outside of that too much. Because, again, I don't want to just turn someone off and then in a week's time flick them off because it doesn't seem fair to them. Um, so I've tried to manage that as well as possible. Out of interest, how does the, the logistics of that work? So is there a percentage of taps that uh, are, if you like, let's, let's say contracted? And does that is that per venue or is it an, an overall uh, over, across the 160-odd? I think um, they, they write all their contracts totally differently. So for us, it's different for both of the major providers. Um, so effectively for our group, it's a, it's a percentage for Lion Nathan across the entire group. So I'll have some pubs that are 100% Lion Nathan um, and I'll have other pubs that might be 60% Lion Nathan. Um, overall, we have a percentage that we have to reach and with, with CUB, it's a number of taps. So each of our venues has to have a set number of taps. So, you know, in a venue, like we have to have two CUB taps in all of our pubs nationwide, but in a venue that might only have six taps, that doesn't, the percentage doesn't work out properly. So I've got to have two CUB taps, but I can only have four Light Nathan oh, taps. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So the, the, it, it's, it's all a juggling act. Luckily, um, when we negotiated the contracts, it was rolled up nationally. So it's just me reporting those numbers to them at a national level. Um, so there are some venues where I don't have any CUB, but I've got four taps in another venue to make up the two difference. So it is a juggling act and it is, I've got a very complicated spreadsheet that explains it all to me. Um, I hate spreadsheets at the best of times. I've just, I'm having conniptions just thinking about how you'd have to deal with that. I'm pretty sure no one else knows how to read it. And that's really great for me as well, because I can share it with them and they'll never know anyway. But um, yeah, it, that, that, that's effectively the rule. We do try and stick to it because, you know, the relationships for us are really, are really important and really strong. And we get a lot of great value out of those relationships. And like I said, you know, during this really challenging time, both of those major brewers have been really great for us. Um, they've really tried to step in and help us where possible, um, which has been, you know, being able to do it centrally has made it so much simpler for our venues despite all of the challenges that still exist, even being able to do it centrally, it's still got all of these challenges which are really hard to manage. So um, it's been a really eye-opening experience the last couple of months. Now, I want to pick your brain because you've got good form. You've got a track record in both the liquid side of, of beer and also the brand side of beer. 52% of the, of the stuff coming out of the taps that we're sitting here looking at now is Furfy Refreshing Ale and Carlton Draft. What happens with Furfy Lager? Why why Furfy Lager and what, what do you think that's going to do? Is it going to cannibalise Furfy Refreshing Ale or is it going to cannibalise Carlton Draft? So, so we're sitting here, we, I come back in 12 months' time because I owe you that because it's been two years since I promised to come and see you. Um, what are the numbers then? What's that 52% look like? Yeah, it's, I think it's, really, it's a really interesting play by them to release Furfy Lager. Um, I'm curious to see what it is. And to be honest, I don't have a crystal ball and I can't tell you that. I think there's been examples of where the big guys have launched beers in the past that where it hasn't worked. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to happen in this case. Furphy's got great brand 
um, loyalty at the moment. It's a, a newer brand into that market. It is, it's sort of going back to that lager style beer though. So it's stepping back into the old world of what they're trying to achieve. So I think what they're really trying to do is take a bit of that market. You know, where, where they used to really promote James Bogues um, as their sort of core lager, I think it's probably going to creep into that space a little bit more than taking away from Carlton Draft per se or even Furfy Refreshing Ale, um, which is just a Kolsch. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to grow the pie for them or change the pie. Um, the beer is actually really great. I've had the liquid, so I can, I can speak firsthand and say that it tastes great. I think people are going to enjoy the product. How it changes the marketplace, I don't really know, and I don't really see how it's going to fit in. We're going to be putting it into our venues because I think the marketing push that will be behind it will be um, really key for our venues. Where it slots in, though, I'm not really sure what it will come out at a cost of. I'd imagine it wouldn't, it wouldn't be um, replacing the Furfy Refreshing Ale tap. Definitely not. No, we'll keep. No, we'll definitely be keeping Furfy Refreshing Ale on for sure. Um, that that beer and that brand has worked so well, and it works so well in all of our venues. Um, I mean, everyone's experienced the sort of play that that's had. Yeah, I, I really like the. I think one of the things for me is the one of the things that Lion Nathan has done really well with their brands is they've really gone for that local appeal. So, I mean, that product is only going to be available in Victoria to start with. Where have we heard that before? I, I, li- I like that. Um, you know, they're, they're releasing Forex Dry Up in Queensland. So just as a comparison, at the same time, like when they're launching both those beers, that's going to come out in Queensland. So what we're going to see is the local play, like they're, they're playing at that local heartstring. And I, I get the marketing behind that. I really feel that. Um, both those products do taste different. They're both lagers. They're both crisp, dry lagers. And I think they're going to work in both of those markets. What they, again, come at the expense of, I'm not really sure. I think Forex Dry Up in Queensland will probably come at the expense of the competitors. Um, Great Northern Original will probably take a hit because of that product. Um, but, again, you don't know until it plays out and you don't know what the consumers... And there's a lot of brand loyalty for Forex in Queensland. There's a lot of brand loyalty now for a brand new beer up there, which is, I mean, it's not brand new anymore, but Great Northern is a, a relatively new beer up there. So will Forex actually bite into that Great Northern space? I'm, I'm not sure. Those products will be very, fairly similar, though, in terms of what they're offering for consumers. Well, I, I think the whole point of, you know, beer is a conversation is that it's that in a nutshell. It's um, I, thinking ahead to, you know, in 12 months' time, looking back on this conversation and thinking, yeah, interesting, you know, to, to see how... how how things have changed down the track. Um, now, before we let you go, AVC, 160-odd. So, pop quiz for you. How many station hotels do you own? How many? We've only got one station hotel, I think. Okay, what about commercial? Um, I don't think we've got any commercial hotels. Do you have any multiples at all? You must at least have two railway hotels. We've got... No, there's no two railway hotels. Um, we have... What are the double-ups? We've got, we've got the Royal. We've got a couple of Royal hotels. Yeah, there's the Royal. Funnily enough, none of our, we don't really have that many duplicates. Like it's the Royal and everyone calls it the Royal, but it's actually the Royal Mail. And then we actually have the Royal Hotel, which is just the Royal Hotel. Um, yeah, no duplicates. Beer Deluxe. Beer Deluxe is our biggest duplicate, actually. So we've got beer. Oh, three for. We've got uh, four, five, five of them. T2 at, um, at Sydney Airport Sydney, is a Beer Deluxe. So there's King Street Wharf, there's Airport, there's Albury, um, there's here and there's Hawthorne. So there's five, five Beer Deluxes in the group. And that's our biggest duplicate. There we go. Well, on that note, Bobby Henry from AVC, thank you very much for joining us on Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Pete. It's really great. Thanks. And that was AVC Beverage Manager Bobby Henry. Hope you enjoyed the chat. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and are proud sponsors of Beer as a Conversation. Don't forget, if you like Radio Brews News, you can throw us a bone in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, drop a few shekels in the cup, or leave a one-off bag of cash. Small unmarked bills, please. Or you can review, hit like, subscribe, hit the bell, hardest, whatever you cool kids do nowadays to show your appreciation. Details are in the show notes. You probably don't read show notes, do you? Why do I bother? Thank you.